You're listening. The Chilean British Radio. to episode 4 of You, Me and Her, your weekly dose of feminism here on the Chilean British Radio. We're currently live and I'll be here for the next hour playing female artists or vocalists only and discussing feminist issues. You can catch up on the past episodes by searching for the Chilean British Radio on Mixcloud and Spotify. If at any point you'd like to contact me with your responses to the questions I'll be asking, you can contact me via Instagram at travelsinateacup. Today we'll be talking about beauty. What is it? Where do we get today's beauty standards from? And how might they vary around the world? Who benefits from the beauty standards we impose on ourselves? And finally, I'll be sharing some top tips for accepting compliments and boosting self-esteem. First off, as always, let's kick off with a song. This is Scars to Your Beautiful by Alessia Caro. She just wants to be Beautiful she goes, unnoticed she knows, no limits she craves, attention she praises, an image she prays to be sculpted by the sculptor, oh she don't see the light that's shining, deeper than the eyes can find it, maybe we are made a blind soul, she tries to cover up her pain, and cut her woes away. Girls don't cry after the face is made, but there's a hope that's waiting for you in the dark. You should know you're beautiful just the way you are, and you don't have to change a thing. The world could change its heart. No scars to your beautiful. The stars are we're beautiful.
My favourite lyrics from that song are There's a hope that's waiting for you in the dark You're beautiful just the way you are You're listening to Emma on the Chilean British Radio and as I mentioned before the break today we're discussing feminism and beauty However, beauty is such a wide concept and I first wanted to think about what that means When we talk about beauty, let's be clear we're talking about something abstract and difficult to define to the extent that we might consider it to be partly made up For example, you might think that a golden sunset over a beach is beautiful and put a photo of it on Instagram with a caption saying something to that effect, but also fully believe that Pasha Bell's Canon in D is also beautiful. You might describe the Mona Lisa as beautiful and then a few hours later hear a viral love story on the internet and think that's beautiful too. What do all these different things have in common? Can we really say that there is one core element to beauty? Is it a subjective thing, meaning that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as they say, or is it an objective fact, meaning all these things have some kind of inherent feature? Philosophers have talked about these ideas and these questions for centuries. A common idea which comes up in the writings of people like Kant is that of pleasure. That is to say that beauty could be defined by the pleasure it causes for the viewer or listener or participant. However, Since everyone has different opinions on what is beautiful and what is not, that we might conclude that it comes from a mixture of personal experience and preferences and universal aesthetic concepts. Of course, when we talk about beauty in everyday life, we generally refer to physical appearance, and for the rest of our time in this episode, that's mostly what we'll be talking about. But I think it's equally important to bear in mind from the very beginning that it's a word with a meaning that we've more or less made up which we'll see more obviously when we compare different beauty standards around the world. Next up, it's a well-needed reminder by Pink with Perfect. Made a wrong turn once or twice Dug my way out, blood and fire Bad decisions, that's alright Welcome to my silly life Mistreated, this place misunderstood Change. 
I swallow the fear The only thing I should be drinking is an ice cold beer So cool in line and we try, try, try But we try too hard and it's a waste of my time Done looking for the critics cause they're everywhere They don't like my jeans, they don't get my hair Exchange ourselves and we do it all the time Why do we do that? Why do I do that? Why do I do that? Yeah! talking about feminism and beauty and for this next section I'd like to take you on a journey around the world looking at the different beauty standards that exist beyond home. Now no doubt you're already quite familiar with the standard western or anglo-saxon view of feminine beauty, the kind you'll see portrayed in Hollywood films or in mainstream music videos. This is generally typified by a tall slender woman with a small waist but a larger bust which is of course unrealistic for most body shapes and that is only covering feminine beauty standards because, frankly, covering masculine and feminine beauty standards would take me hours. In France, there is a more unconventional idea of beauty, which has more of a focus on being natural. There is even a phrase, jolie laide, which literally means pretty ugly, and refers to someone who has unusual features which somehow make her more interesting to look at. Unlike in England or America, where many women prefer to apply a full coverage foundation before leaving the house, in France there's a much stronger preference for natural skin, with a good moisturiser to nourish the skin instead of covering it up. On the other hand, one of the best-selling beauty products in France is lipstick, which really shows that the parts of the body we emphasise in different countries can vary a lot. In Iran, where many women wear hijab and most of their bodies are covered by modest clothing, it's all about the face, and the country has been described as the rhinoplasty capital of the world, which means nose jobs are extremely popular. In Australia, a lot of the beauty standards revolve around beach beauty, meaning fake tan is a popular product as it is in England and America too. However, the opposite trend is found in South Korea, where porcelain pale skin is much sought after, as in the past, tan skin implied a lower social status because, of course, people who worked outside doing manual labour and couldn't stay indoors were more likely to have tanned skin. So women will wear clothing to cover their whole bodies to prevent tanning and may spend a lot of money on creams to whiten their skin. Many African countries, such as Ghana, haven't succumbed to Western pressures and instead prefer women with more curves, larger women, 
um, because slimmer women are considered less attractive and encouraged to put on weight, which is really different from the beauty standards that I'm used to personally. Again, this originates from the fact that in times of drought or famine, being overweight suggested economic prosperity and having enough to eat, so that was preferable. In the Maasai tribe in Kenya, women wear heavy jewellery made of stones or elephant trunks in order to stretch their earlobes. So here we're looking at earlobes being a major focus of beauty. And these large earlobes are a sign of status, so the larger your earlobe, the better. Another more unusual tradition for Western listeners is found in the Paduang tribe in Burma or Thailand where women wear brass coils around their neck to create an illusion of length. The brass coils push down the shoulders and over time the women can add more and more brass coils which are really heavy um, as they get used to it um, and are able to stack more and get the illusion of an even longer neck. Finally, the Maori people of New Zealand see beauty in large, intricate face tattoos, particularly on their chins or lips, a tradition which was previously carried out with chisels rather than modern-day tattoo equipment. Each tattoo, named a moko, is unique to the wearer and contains information about the woman's family and tribal affiliations. It should be becoming pretty obvious through all these descriptions of different places in the world that beauty standards are only the ones that we're used to are only a small proportion of all the different ideas around the world especially as this is only covering as i said feminine beauty standards and not masculine attractivity so let's take a break for our next song now this is beautiful by christina aguilera Oh 
was with Who Says. how to define beauty philosophically and how concepts of feminine beauty vary around the world. But of course, what we consider beautiful today hasn't always been that way, and I'm about to take you on a whirlwind tour of Western beauty through the centuries. First up, we're whizzing back to ancient Greece some 24 centuries ago. Picture those classical Greek sculptures you'll have seen in museums. For the ancient Greeks, beauty was about form and proportions, and feminine beauty centred on symmetry and ideally a closeness to the golden ratio. Different possible translations of the word beauty into ancient Greek suggest that also beauty could be related to youthfulness, 
or an authenticity, an authenticity with one's real age and fine quality objects as well. No matter its definition, beauty was seen as a gift from the gods and a source of power as well, as we see in the story of Helen of Troy, who supposedly had a face to launch a thousand ships. In practice, in ancient Greece, women often bleached their hair in vinegar, which caused hair loss and led them to use wigs shaped like snakes. Long hair was associated with upper-class women, so this was also seen as beautiful, as were monobrows, if you can imagine that instead of plucking your brows, you'd be encouraging a monobrow to grow. They'd happily even draw one in if they didn't have one with dark pigment. In ancient Egyptian art, women are depicted with slim, high waists and narrow hips. Dark black hair was the ideal and many men and women shaved their natural hair and wore wigs instead to accomplish this ideal. Here we also see makeup, which is really important in ancient Egyptian times, which is worn by both men and women, uh, and particularly with a preference for thick black eyeliner. I approve. Over in medieval Japan, long hair was also prized, so to the extent that they would sometimes reach the floor. Now, I used to have hair that I could sit on, so I can kind of understand the appeal. Uh, They also had an interest in eyebrows, just like the ancient Greeks, but instead they shaved their brows off completely and drew new ones on, higher up on the forehead, almost at the hairline. Skin was painted white, aside from rosy cheeks and small bow lips. We're going to take a little break in our whirlwind history tour and let's hear it for this empowering anthem from the film The Greatest Showman. It's Kiala Settle with This Is Me.
Halfway through our rapid tour through beauty standards over time, and moving into the 14th and 15th centuries now, we're going to Renaissance Italy. At this time, beauty was linked to virtue, which meant that if a woman was beautiful on the outside, people believed she must be beautiful on the inside too. This is a widespread idea in medieval France and Spain too. The ideal look in Italy was strawberry blonde curls, a high forehead, so women tended to pluck their hairlines, and a fuller figure with pale skin. Let's skip ahead to the 1800s now, and in France there's a new fashion. Oval faces, rosy cheeks, and long curly hair which should be powdered to give it a white or grey look. Here we are in the 21st century dyeing grey hair, and they were powdering their hair with with, with powder to make it look grey purposefully. So wigs are still super popular at this time, and so is very pale white makeup, made with poisonous lead and mercury. Seeing a pattern yet? The craze for skin tanning is really only a very recent development. Over in England at this time, it's not too different. Victorian women, or at least those in the upper class, glamorised tiny waists achieved by tight corsets and petticoats with full skirts. This small waistline craze lasted into the 1900s until the feminist revolution in the 1920s began to prioritise less overtly curvaceous or feminine looks and instead went for a more boyish, in inverted commas, look with shorter hair and less fitting clothes before this was taken over again by the area of Marilyn Monroe, an American actress and model with a typical hourglass curvy figure in the 1950s. Fashion moved towards rail-thin models in the 1960s and 70s, then to huge hair and thick makeup in the 1980s, and all of the easily distinguishable fashion choices that went with it. The 1980s were the first real celebration of diversity in beauty, particularly in England, as more diverse models and celebrities began making waves into popular culture. Ideas about fashion and beauty are cyclical, as you'll have seen through this this description, which means that there are overlaps and throwbacks throughout the century too. Now, we're coming into the 21st century, and as we've seen, there's still a huge amount of variation across the world. I hope that in the future, the decade we're living in now will be seen as the era of choice, but there's still a long way to go, and we shall see. After this next song, we're going to look at who exactly profits from today's beauty standards, and what more there is to do. For now, this is Jessie J, with a message about accepting ourselves. It's who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I stare at my reflection in the mirror Why am I doing this to myself? Losing my mind on a tiny error I nearly left the real me on the shelf
Thank you, Jesse J, for that reminder. And also, I just want to take a moment to thank all of my friends who have sent in recommendations for feminist tracks, which has really helped with curating this playlist. So thank you, Al. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you, Katrin. Now, I'm asking a question today, which is, who benefits from the things you're insecure about? Here's the thing. Most likely, if you're listening to this, you live in a capitalist society, which means that companies are owned privately and seek to keep on making more and more money. Where do they get this money from? Selling more and more products for a profit. And who is buying these products? It's us, the world's population, you and me and her. To get someone to give you money, you've got to offer them something. If you're selling a product no one wants, like diet walker, wit diet water, which was actually a real thing someone tried to sell in Japan, you can look it up, then no one will buy it. But if no one wants your products, never fear. You could just make them feel extremely insecure about something, say, a part of their body, and propagate a myth about how all respectable people have much better parts of their body. And next, produce a product which you claim will solve the thing you've now made them insecure about, and charge a fortune for it. Hey presto, a winning business plan. I'm possibly exaggerating, but this really is, on some level, what many parts of the beauty industry are doing, profiting from our insecurities. All of the adverts you see on TV are promising something. Usually, they're promising to improve your life in some way, to make you look better, to make you smell better, and as a side note, why are all perfume adverts so bizarre? To make you eat better, exercise better, and they're playing on societally ingrained ideas about the perfect woman, the perfect man, the perfect life, to make you feel like your reality isn't as good as it could be. It's all about the could. Think of how many women's magazines still insist in 2019 on plastering headlines across their front page about achieving the perfect beach body. They're selling their advice on how to make you look the way that society is telling you you should look. If you don't feel insecure about the way you look, then of course, this strategy won't work. The other thing that the beauty industry does is create the idea of false needs, which works by manipulating our ideas about what makes us happy. Does anyone actually need three colours of lipstick? Does anyone need whiter teeth or tanner skin or a black line around their eyes which will last all day? I really doubt it. But of course, if we lived on nothing except our basic needs, we feel like we wouldn't be happy. So through a lot of different and subtly ingrained techniques, these industries aren't just selling their products, they're selling us what we think is happiness. Let me just clarify, however, that I'm not anti-makeup or anti-beauty products. I think they should be seen as an accessory with an emphasis on choice. You'll notice I haven't really tackled makeup today in this episode because makeup has its own fascinating history and its own set of questions and its own set of issues, so much so that I think it probably could constitute an entire hour's episode on its own. So next time you're feeling a little bit insecure about something, I want you to work out who that feeling is actually benefiting. Is it benefiting you in any way to feel sad about the way you look or the way you feel or the way you act? Ask yourself the question in this next song. This is Confident by Demi Lovato. Yeah.
What's wrong with being? What's wrong with being? What's wrong with being confident? Uh huh. What's wrong with being? What's wrong with being? What's wrong with being confident? Uh huh. It's time to get the change out. What's wrong with being confident? Uh huh. What's wrong with being? Yeah. What's wrong with being? Yeah. What's wrong with being confident? coming right up in this next song. It's Sophie Beam with Girls Will Be Girls. I gotta have it called Alexander McQueen But I never show it off cause I still got the dreams That I had when I was little Every girl wants to be a famous actress, model, superstar queen
could see me work it. Yeah, yeah, we got it. You could see me work it. Shots, shots, I call them. If you feel yourself blasted, then we're gonna show me. So I'm ripping the baddest bitches. They swiping the mad lipstick. And all of us taking over. We naughty and nice. Doing bags, stacking hundreds for that rich girl life. concepts of beauty come from and the beauty industry but what about more constructive ideas on how to beat those societal expectations and be true to the beauty you already possess in your very being and existing here are my five top quick tips for feeling a little more beautiful number one accept compliments instead of deflecting them it makes the other person feel better and it will make you feel better too accept how awesome you are and let the compliments build you up because if you keep rejecting them people will stop giving you them even when they want to Number two, pay attention to your posture. Sit up straight, keep your shoulders back, open your chest. Studies have found that even these little changes make you feel more confident in your thoughts and words. Number three, try to smile, even just at yourself in the mirror if not at strangers. Your brain gets an instant mood boost just from the muscle contractions, so even if you don't feel like smiling, you're more likely to actually genuinely feel like it afterwards. Number four, if you look in the mirror and see something you don't like, such as a spot or a scar or a blemish, you can do two things. First, try to switch to an observing role rather than a judging role. Observe the blemish, don't judge it. Second, move your gaze to a part of your body you do like. And remember, things aren't all good or bad, we're all a little bit of both. Finally, number five, try to move your attention away from your physical outward appearance and practice caring for your inner self. Drink lots of water, which by the way does improve your skin, eat your greens, take time to rest and relax, do exercise to feel good and not to look a certain way, and spend time with people who build you up. Bonus tip, listen to some really feel-good feminist tracks and feminist podcasts. On that note, here's your next song. It's Brave by Mariah Peters. No one ever told me this would be easy But I never knew that it could be this hard All the worry, the worry, the worry is weighing on me Could you help me break down all these question marks
Before we end the show, I've picked a lesser-known feminist of the week to share with you all. No doubt you've heard of the most feminist, the most famous famous feminist British suffragettes, but have you heard of Princess Sophia Dilip Singh? Born in 1876, she was a daughter of the last Maharaja of the Sikh Empire and also Queen Victoria's goddaughter, which meant she got to live in Faraday House at Hampton Court in England after her family lost the house. However, far from staying away from normality, she was an active member of the Women's Social and Political Union, WPSU, the militant women's right the women the militant women's rights organization led by Emmeline Pankhurst. She spoke at meetings and protested against the exclusion of women from voting rights by refusing to pay taxes and rates. 
And that meant that she had a diamond ring taken away and impounded against a fine for non-payment non of various licenses. And then she was fined again a few years later for refusing to pay taxes at all, which got her pearl necklace and gold bangle seized and auctioned. She didn't care, she was doing it for the feminist cause. In 1911, Princess Sophia joined her feminist comrades and boycotted the census, writing on her census form, No vote, no census. As women do not count, they refuse to be counted, and I have a conscientious objection to filling out this form, before signing her name. She made no secret for her, of her affiliations with the movement despite her social status. Even when the 1918 law to allow some privileged women to vote was passed, she remained interested in the cause and particularly in the enfranchisement and education of Indian women. While British society was much less diverse at the time and the suffragette movement was therefore less full of women of colour like Princess Sophia, I think it's important not to forget those who were involved. It's especially amazing that this young woman was so invested in the cause, despite the fact that Britain had taken away her father's kingdom, his wealth, and by extension her plans for the future. The sisterhood was more important to her than all of that. Now, before I leave you, I have two things to do. Number one, uh, for our UCBC students and uh, listeners, um, I'd like to draw your attention to a book exchange event on the 23rd of April from 12pm open to the whole UCBC community. And secondly, to all my listeners, I'd like to wish you a beautiful, confident week and leave you with this classic. It's Survivor by Destiny's Child.
Chilean British Radio.